This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you. Um, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. But he became angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and began to plead with him. And he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even one one young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Please be seated. 
grace and peace to each of you this day through faith in Christ Jesus. Feeling a little reverberation. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Growing up, many years before I uh, took on the craziness of driving a car, I was a devoted bike rider. Um, Not a Harley. (laughs) Um, Not a Honda or a Kawasaki. It was a good, old-fashioned, yellow Schwinn bicycle. And it was my adventure vehicle. I'd go uh, grab it, and after being dropped off by the bus every day, I would ride all over our neighborhood. Um, I'd go into friends' driveways. I'd go and talk to my friends, and I'd invite Christine to come, and let's go explore some way. We even built a, a fort together, riding our bikes into a distant apple orchard. I remember that sense of exploration. I remember the sense of freedom and the fact that I reveled in that action and the connections that I could make on that little bicycle on my own with a couple of pals as a kid. Now, I would observe now in neighborhoods things have changed. Maybe maybe not in your neighborhood, but certainly in mine. It's more likely than not than children all the way up to junior high are accompanied by any one of a number of uh, people when they're on their bicycle adventures or when they go to birthday parties or make a friendship connection. Kids living on either side of us um, in Bexley, which is where we live, never venture out out of their driveways um, with their bicycles unless they're with a parent, a grandparent, or a guardian of some kind of caregiver. Even the older kids in those families get escorted home from school. So the sense of keeping an eye out for danger and the fear of loss is palpable in our society today. We continue to be afraid for the safety and security of many, and especially for our children. Will others take advantage of them? Will they meet up with something that they don't know how to handle? Are they ready to handle the temptations and the vulnerabilities that life presents for each one of us? A new program uh, debuted on television, on network television last week, entitled The Family. I just happened to turn on the TV after um, doing some things at the seminary, and I watched it. Um, And it's a story. um, It's called The Family, and it's a story about the homecoming of a a lost child, uh, presumed dead for many years. And the story focuses on the impact of the loss on the rest of the family and the guilt that's associated with not protecting a child. So every member of that family, as well as the police officer's view is shown and the way of coping with the 10 years that have transpired since the child disappeared. And it even adds, which is true on network television anymore, wrongful imprisonment, the concern for what things look like for a politically ambitious parent, and the abuse of of the child by his kidnapper, and the ongoing question, of course, of whether or not the child that has been returned is in reality the same child. So that shows like every parent's nightmare, right? Every family member's nightmare. Um, It only takes a moment to go from peaceful to panic when he suddenly realizes that somehow someone is gone or may have gone astray in some way or another. 
It's a worry that never ends. Just when you think you've gotten through the scary, I can walk but not really talk phase, kids go off to preschool and kindergarten out of sight for hours on end. And then they get older and want to do things like explore or do things on their own without you or go to the mall by themselves or hang out with, uh, without you knowing quite where they are or who they're with. Throughout our lives, we still want to know where our kids are. And always parents want to know how their children are doing. Out of sight does not, definitely does not mean out of mind for those who love one another. So people raise children, um, if their parent, sometimes parents are raising children, sometimes aunts or uncles, guardians, coaches raise children, teachers, and beloveds know that there's a time and a place when letting go is necessary. To grow and develop any one of our own sense of responsibility is important. And um, for people to mature, we need to be able to take consequences for our actions and to figure out a way to start adventuring in some way or another with their own version of that yellow Schwinn bicycle. And it's about daring to test the untamed waters of the world. So in the first century, it's important to um, have this context for the gospel for today, because in the first century, that kind of attitude of freedom and adventure was very unfamiliar, and in fact, it was bad. Uh, there were strict cultural and judicial laws for the behavior of children, and even adult children, and that would be an age that could be anywhere between 13 and probably 33. They had to abide by the traditions of a Torah-devoted, agrarian-based life. In that world, the father was a larger-than-life figure and totally in charge until his death. Sons stayed to work the land, and daughters became a part of their spouse's family unit. So um, the prodigal God, a book that was written by a man named Timothy Keller, tells a story about the two brothers in our gospel as giving us some kind of insight into two ways that people try to make life work. Um, The younger son pursues self-discovery. He's on a quest to find and fulfill himself, even if a few people have to get hurt along the way. The older brother is trying to fit in and, and along a respectable path of social and moral conformity. He's trying to be well-liked by pleasing his father, his family, and his faith. And Keller describes that trajectory as self-salvation. And the prodigal son's uh, request, petition for an early inheritance, wasn't like a kid in our day begging for a car before going off to college. That youngest son's request was an offensive slap in the face, I wish you were dead, disregard for all that was accepted, expected, and respected. He was supposed to stay on the family property, raise his own family, help bring in the crops and run the family business. He was supposed to honor his father through his life and his work. So the younger son's demand for an early retirement from any family commitment or obligation was the equivalent of his robbing the family safe deposit box and taking off over the horizon. That his father okayed that, um, which would have been considered incredibly self-centered, is an act of utter generosity and grace taken by the parent. 
The father gives his child the gift of freedom, even if it is freedom from the father. It's now the child's responsibility to figure it all out and live within that freedom. So the youngest son in today's uh, gospel goes down hard and fast. and um, It's almost as if he's been given a platinum MasterCard, right? And decide he's going to go to experience every part of, of exploring the good life might mean, might mean spring break in Lauderdale, maybe. Um, gambling in Vegas. After the money's gone, what's left? Disaster. He takes the wrong choice at every turn, it seems. And when he gets in trouble, he chooses an option that's very reprehensible to any good Jew. He becomes a servant to swine, and he can't even eat their disgusting food. So this parable is probably familiar to all of us. It's a standard um, parable. We hear it in Sunday school, VBS, um, continuing uh, adult education, too. And you've probably heard close to a million sermons about it, right? Close to a million? And perhaps we like that parable and we refer to it so much because we like the contriteness of the contrary youngster. He comes to himself, and that's part of the text. He realized the miserable life he was living was worse than anything the servants and day laborers who worked for his father were experiencing. From the been-there-done-that vantage point of us today in this century, it's hard really to get maybe how grievous this young man's actions had been because it was the worst of the worst and how much grief and shame he had caused his family. He hadn't just sown some wild oats. He went out and broke every custom that was part of the family and the faith community. And he presented a dilemma within his family that's just perhaps like many dilemmas we face today. Every one of us not only faces um, a, a crosswords, crossroad where we stand in our faith life today, everyone has to stand up for what it is that we think is most important or to make a commitment to be part of this community or another community or step into a cubicle to vote based on our beliefs or to provide leadership in business or in school. We face those crossroads every day. And doing, we engage in following the framework that we have established for good order and right behavior, or are we called into something else or somewhere in between? So I think that the real impact of this story is about the response to something that's scandalous, demeaning, like the actions of the younger son. So I invite you to focus on the dad here. Dad forgives. That's the scandal. The scandal of a parent's love. The scandal of a parent's forgiveness. Perhaps we should rename this parable the forgiving parent instead of the prodigal son. Now, scandal's not anything new. It's as old as the Garden of Eden and familiar as the accusations attempted in political debates recently. Think about what is one of the most popular shows on network television today. It's on Hulu, too. It's called Scandal. Features an actress by the name of Carrie Washington as this beautiful woman who's engaged in scandal after scandal, including having having an affair with the president. Try doing good and ending up on hard copy or entertainment tonight. 
Shame and scandal rule our attentions in television and movies and the political arena. Perhaps we could also say that salvation and scandal rule the church. Our scandal and salvation can rule the church. And the message of Lent is that we have a scandalous God. But it's a different kind of scandal than uh, what scintillates and provokes our tabloid tendencies. It's the scandal of love. It's the scandal of forgiveness. It's beyond our tolerance, and it brings out our resentment sometimes. But God continues to scandalize us at every turn. Today, many of us respectable, color-within-the-lines folks have trouble with the concept of forgiveness. A new addition to the bloodstream of human history that came from the scandal of the cross and its occupant, that scandalous Jesus. I quote Hannah Arendt often when she said in a book called The Human Condition, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean to be naive or plaster over cracks in people or history. Forgiveness looks square in the face of wrong and chooses healing and reconciliation rather than hatred and revenge. It's the hardest thing in the world to offer true forgiveness. It's scandalously hard. Living uh, in Europe about a decade ago, um, my spouse Bob and I spent some time touring Buchenwald's concentration camp in Germany. And that visit still haunts me, not only because we, what, what we observed as we walked through the camp, and building after building, it still held that sense of death. And there was some kind of, of the smell of loss and, uh, and the smell of evil as well. I mean, we also heard stories that were even worse because retribution and further death followed the closing of the camps as well. It was um, evil upon evil. Well, in the midst of all of that, the truth of that is the reality that the statistics and stories of incredible brutality and complicity are not the final word. From inside the barbed wire of the death camps, there were some scandalous acts of forgiveness and love. Here's a prayer that was found um, in Buchenwald beside a young boy who was uh, found dead at at the day of liberation. He wrote, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but all those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted on us. Remember the fruits we have brought thanks, bought thanks to this suffering. Our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that's grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits we have borne be their forgiveness. Amen.